episode 44 with preacher and scholar, Reverend Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmus, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with scholar, preacher, and activist, the good right Reverend Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. Ebony's theology stands at the precipice of black and woman and God. Her scholarship requires us to take a critical pause and pirouette around our beloved black church and its patriarchal pulpit. And at this, we must ask ourselves, who is this God we speak of? How are we oriented towards the divine? And if we live on the margins, does God dance there too? Ebony Marshall Terman was born and raised on the blocks of Brooklyn, New York. Dancing the wop and doing the butt, Ebony's mother placed her in community arts programs to encourage her daughter to reach beyond what she saw in front of her. And reach she did. And with a grand allegro, Ebony became a concert ballerina and danced for Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater while earning her master's in philosophy and Christian ethics from Fordham University. She continued her studies, earning a doctorate from Union Theological Seminary, and became the youngest woman to be named assistant minister at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, New York. A teacher to the preachers and theologians, Ebony now serves as Associate Professor of Theology and African American Religion at Yale University. Lauded by many, Ebony's work is characterized by her passion for black people to be liberated from systematic white supremacist theology and its residual impact on race, gender, class, ability, and age. On this Easter Sunday, we present a sermon for the ages, one that asks our listeners to reimagine who God is and the people Christian theology claims Christ came to die for. Discussing topics from black liberation to womanist theology, we approach today's conversation as dutifully and diligent as you did your Easter Sunday memory verse as a child. If Jesus wept, then we wail at Reverend Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman's candor and care for the black body, her community, and our God. Be sure to share some of your thoughts on today's episode with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. And if you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, hit that subscribe button. This and more content is over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, she has risen, the Reverend Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman. Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm so glad to be here with you, Dario. What a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for the invitation. Oh, I you have been on my mind for a very, very, very long time. And when I think about what it means to exist, um, not only as an individual, but an individual like 
doing very like pivotal and foundational work. Um, but like in a multivalent and multidimensional way, like I can't think of anyone more right, right. Mm. than than you when that comes to mind. Um, so, you know what, without further ado, like let's hop in because this is, this is going to, this is, this is what we need. Like this is, this is the word on today and for every day moving forward. Um, but to start, um, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Mm, that is a question that I am not often asked, but the first persons who came to mind um, are my daughters who are two years old and um, they're, they're twins. And, you know, I dedicated my book to my brothers and I'm of course always thinking my first book to my brothers and my next book, the book I'm working on is uh, dedicated to my well, it's dedicated to mom and them. So my mother's broadly construed. Um, and I haven't, I mean, they've only been here for two years, but I haven't had an opportunity to dedicate anything to them. And so because I imagine, I mean, we're talking about imagination today, because I imagine that um, so much of my work going forward will be not only for them in an explicit way, but for building a better world for black people, for black women um, and for black children. I think whatever we talk about today has to be for them, you know? And so, yeah, my girls, Harlem and crew. <laughs> mm, okay, Harlem and crew come yes. through. Um, you know, so I think it's great to just hop right into it. Like, what is Black and womanist liberation theology? And how yeah. would, like, the listener begin to, like, embody this theology? Absolutely. So theology, in a very basic kind of fundamental way, is uh, our talk, our discourse about God, right? So, um you know, you don't have to be a professional theologian like me to do theology. Theology is happening all around us, right? And especially it ought to be happening in our worship settings and churches on Sunday mornings. I mean, too often it's not happening or not in any robust way, but that's another story for another day, right? So theology is, is happening around us. It's what we say about God. It's how we orient ourselves to what we believe is divine for um, centuries, uh, really since the, certainly the dawn of the modern world, um, uh, theology has been dominated by European voices. And historically, those voices have demonized uh, non-European lives and life chances, right? So that, um, that which is, I mean, very simply, right? That which is white, is closer to godliness, right? It is closer to that which is angelic, that which is pure, that which is clean. And that which is black or non-white, right, is, um, um, it is uh, made kind of to, to, to um, be synonymous with that which is demonic, um, that which is devilish, that, that which is un impure and unclean. And so um, in the, uh, mid uh, 20th century, the, the mid to late 20th century, 
um, James Halcone, uh, who is known to um, us as the father of Black theology, began to systematize a theological voice, a, a kind of talk about God that um, reclaimed Black life as a site not only as a site of divine happening, right, of, of God's presence, but actually blackness as an attribute of God, right? That God, he, he would go on to claim, right? That God is black and that black life, black power, um, black love, black aesthetics, um, you know, black art, it all has something to say about who black people, people of African descent, um, certainly in the US and even globally, it, it is representative of what we know, how we have come to know who God is and how God shows up in our lives. Um, and so um, that's what Black theology is very fundamentally. It is about claiming uh, a God who is on the side of those who have been, uh, especially again, within the context of modernity. So from the, trans the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade until the present moment of anti-Blackness in which we currently stand, um, a God who is on the side of the oppressed, a God who is Black, was Black, a God in Christ who um, walks with the poor and the lowly and who um, lives and dies uh, alongside us, but also um, who, um, as, as revealed in the biblical text, who comes again with all power. Uh, and shares uh, that power with, um, with God's people. And so um, Black theology is about empowering Black people to live uh, and to live well and abundantly uh, in the face of um, white supremacy uh, and oriented toward dismantling it, resisting it with everything that we possibly have because God says so. And womanist theology um, is um, essentially an outgrowth that may not be the a fairest characterization, but it is um, it, it comes out of it grows out of develops directly out of black theology. Um, it is in, in a sense, um, uh, an heir, uh, uh, the progeny of black theology, as well as feminist theology. And it essentially says, yeah, black theology is great, but we have to, and, and, and we certainly um, need to understand ourselves uh, in terms of our racial identity and the social realities that our racial identity, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, the social realities that uh, manifest for us because of our racial identity, we have to understand that and, and give theological voice to that. But what womanist theology does is says, it's not only race that, um, you know, diminishes uh, or, in, you know, racialization that diminishes our humanity. It is also gender, it is also class, and it is also sexuality. In recent years, right, womanist theologians have also um, begun to talk more about ability uh, and even generationality or ageism, especially as it's shown up in the movement for Black, the contemporary movement for Black lives. But womanist theology is looking at the intersection of oppressions in a way that Black theology didn't, right? Black theology emerging in the late 60s, early 70s, very much uh, informed by the spirit of Black power and um, 
the movement for Black freedom that was um, concretized in the life of, say, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, it, it was by nature uh, patriarchal and continues to be, you know, uh, leaning toward a certain Black a male voice and gaze. And womanist theology says we need to attend to race, but we also have to understand how race and oppressions generally are always intersecting. And, and because of that, we must talk about race and gender and class and sexuality, always holding these oppressions together and thinking through them in light of what God is saying and what God is doing in our lives. And of course, um, the, there are uh, several, um, what we call matriarchs of womanist theology, the primary being, um, uh, Katie Cannon, Jacqueline Grant, and Dolores S. Williams, all of whom were um, uh, uh, graduates uh, of the Union Theological Seminary uh, in the city of New York, where James Cone was teaching, of course. <laughs> wow. So, mm -hmm. And so, and so, thinking about the ways in which, like, Black liberation theology. Um, gave us a different type of access to understanding um, God and the way in which God moves. How has womanist theology um, given us another set of vocabulary or another set of tools with which to access God? Like how did, how did womanist theology expand God? Yeah. Or notion well, of it? Yeah, I think um, so so much could be said, I mean, for every book that has been written on womanist theology, right? There's something that has been added to the pot. Similarly with black theology, we begin with James Cone, but there are, but he has really birthed so many black theologians, right? Since his first text, Black Theology and Black Power, which is right here behind me, because I carry it wherever I go. Um, <laughs> um, and so, so it's hard to kind of, encapsulate in, in just a few sentences, but I'll, I'll try um, to say just a few things. So on the one hand, a black theology, uh, a, a black theology of liberation identifies God as a liberator, right? So the end is the liberation of black people and the liberation of all who are, you know, oppressed, um, um, you know, from their oppression. That is, what the goal is and uh, everything kind of is oriented toward that end. In womanist theology, again, fundamentally, there's an understanding that God might not always be a liberator, right? And this is kind of taken from the biblical text, right? God doesn't always liberate. God acts in a bunch of different ways. And sometimes what God does is help us to survive. And so, and so womanist theology, again, the fundaments of womanist theology, there are all kinds of variations on this and all kinds of um, perspectives, but the fundaments would suggest to us that um, what does it mean, right, for God to help us survive? What does that look like? Um, how does it feel? Where does it happen? Um, what does black survival toward uh, Dolores Williams would say a reasonable uh, uh, a quality of life, right? So a certain kind of thriving. What does that actually look like? Um, it is a womanist theology would also, um, whereas Black theology um, 
tends toward glorifying or uplifting the suffering of Jesus, the suffering of Christ, the cross of Christ, in order to make connections between Black suffering and the suffering of God. Womanist theology does not want to emphasize the suffering of Christ. It takes note of it, but it doesn't want to emphasize it. It wants to look at the life of Jesus and Jesus' ministry of healing, his ministry of writing relationships, his ministry of casting out evil and demons. And it wants to say, by looking at Jesus' life, um, we are given a clue to how we are to survive and how we are to live better lives, even amidst the blight. Um, and so there's um, just a different kind of hermeneutical approach. Uh, and, and that means interpretive approach, a different kind of interpretation that kind of guides the end point. Um, when Black women, are like, you know what, we might not be liberated because this patriarchy and this, um, you know, homophobia and this, you know, and, and the violence of racism and, and the classism and uh, economic injustice that still has Black women earning less than everybody, but doing more than everybody, like all of those things put together, we might not ever get liberated from it. And yet, it, you know, and so we still hold liberation as a goal. We don't want to let it go entirely. But what do we do in the meantime? How do we survive in the meantime? And how do we, um, how do we construct um, a, a quality of life for our families, for our communities amidst it all, right? And I think we see, uh, Dario, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think we see this kind of, womanist vision in the lives of so many Black women who, you know, in the, in the public realm who might never self-identify as womanist, right? Like, I'm thinking about um, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, and all that has been in the news recently with the uh, trials of his uh, killers, and um, specifically the federal trial that just ended, I think, yesterday. And, you know, his mother, being able to stand up there and say some of the things that she has said, to say, you know, um, to, to call evil, evil, right? To call a thing a thing, to name it um, honestly and truthfully, and still, you know, say, and we're going to push for, you, 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 you killed my son and I'm naming it, I'm naming the evil that has happened, but I'm going to fight anyhow. I'm going to stand up here with all of the grief and all of the pain. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to fight so that you'll never be able to do this to another Black child, another Black man, young Black man again. I'm going to call it out. Um, and and that, is the, that is the survival instinct. That is the, you know, the urge toward, uh, toward um, creating some form of quality of life for the community uh, and, and, and for one's family to say, I'm going to stay in the fight and I'm going to take it all the way. And I'm going to believe, right, amidst the evil, in this case of white supremacy, I'm going to believe that God is on my side 
and the truth will indeed prevail. So she's just one example, but we see it all over. I mean, we see it, uh, you know, in, in folk like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown, we see it, you know, in everyday folks. I mean, we could probably invoke our own mothers and our own grannies and aunties. Um, uh, and certainly we could call the role of um, black women who whose names are written in history books, right? To, to um, to demonstrate as examples of of this um, womanist, this womanist ethic um, that desires for us to live, to survive, and to um, live a reasonably quality life, you know, through it all. So, yeah, I'm going on and on and on. Back and talk. No, about it's <laughs> no, it's no. I mean, no, it's 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 it. You know. I, I I told this story actually um, um, on a previous podcast, but during the pandemic, I would run every day um, in the park, and I was really doing it so you know I didn't wouldn't go to the gym and I guess you know mm-hmm. get COVID. Um, but it was interesting that that everyday nature had a new lesson for me, mm-hmm. right? Like it was really a teaching. It was a it was a course actually and um one day i remember it was spring so i ran through the snow i ran through the fall i ran through the leaves fell every season and then when spring came spring and the park went berserk Mm -hmm. right like it was like nature's libido on 20 (laughs) right you know the birds and the bees and the squirrels and everything right um you know, the leaves and the trees are just blossom, like burst onto the scene. Um, and that lesson was, how do you bloom in the midst of chaos? Mm, yes. Right? That yeah. even in the midst of death and destruction and seeming despair, right, of being in a global pandemic where no one, when, the rela- when, you're, when one's relationship to the days of the week have been completely stripped away. Yeah. And yet, right, this is still a moment. This is still fertile ground, right, Yeah. Uh, for a blooming. And so when you speak about, you know, Black womanist theology, it is, it feels to me uh, a divine feminine, um, uh, an, an earth, a Black Madonna-like, uh, power of of transmutation, um, but then also the the expansion, the ability to hold both. Right, that in the midst, right of the death and decay and destruction, there can also be in the same space and at the same time, great flourishing and great blooming. And it is it is it is it is the pathway to that access point. Right, that is within. All of us. At least that is an interpretation it's uh, a that I see. Interpretation. It's beautiful. And when when you talked about the park, running in the park, um, it reminded me that you know one of the central texts for womanist theology is the color purple, and the there's a there's a part in the book and also in the film where Celie and Suge are walking through a field, right, of purple flowers. And Suge says, um, you know, something to the effect of, you know, it hurts God's feelings, right? If you walk by the color purple and don't 
acknowledge it, don't recognize it, right? Um, and, and to that end, um, right, there is kind of this uh, element of um, ecological or environmental um, appreciation and care that is a part of womanist theology, to your point, right, of kind of just being out in the world, being out in nature and acknowledging the beauty that is there. There is also um, a sense of the sacred beyond, within womanist theology that extends beyond traditional sources, right? So while many womanists, um, Christian womanists do uh, privilege and, and give some priority to the Bible, we also value resources like black women's literature, um, music, art, fashion, um, black women's everydayness uh, as a source for doing the work of theology um, and theological ethics. And so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, I think that your reflection is completely on point. Uh, you know, and I love that you spoke about fashion because we're gonna we're gonna reel back into the ways in which the aesthetic right comes yeah. into this story. But speaking of story, like your story, very very interesting. Um, <laughs> it is so, interesting. <laughs> so let's 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 rewind a little bit. You know, uh, young Ebony, you know, young black woman mm-hmm. raised in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. in the 80s, mm-hmm. right? Um, and 90s, yep. And 90s, <laughs> okay, okay, that's weird. And 90s. Um, what, what was that, what was that space? And, and what were those, what were those moments that, you know, those, those early signals, right, of yeah. what was to be and how one becomes, right? Yeah. So um, I... Wow. I rarely, I rarely think intentionally about the old days. I I think about them toward something, but um, the signals. Well, first, so I, so my family roots are in Brooklyn. I was born upstate New York in Syracuse, but grew up because of my mother, my mother's family, all of them um, were in Brooklyn. I grew up between the two places. And then in the 90s, um, I was in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and, and happened to stay in the tri-state area until much later when I took a detour to North Carolina. Um, I, um, I grew up like poor, you know, like very, very working class. Poor might be an overstatement, but we were pretty working class until much later in my adolescence when we were fairly middle-class. I often joked uh, when I first started at Yale, I was like, huh, this, I was a head start baby, okay? 1980s all the way, you know, head start. 19, I was a head start baby and, and look at me now, like the head start, like you don't have no money. So your kid goes to head start for free, you know? Um, <laughs> so I, you know, we, we were, um, everyday people, you know, um, my family hails from, my mother's family hails from, you know, the Barinquin houses, Barinquin Plaza in Brooklyn, um, 101 Humboldt Street. 
and um you know you know and before then out Alabama Avenue East New York and um you know we were just working people everyday people my father worked in a steel mill um they separated when I was very young maybe around five and I grew up although my father was very much um like I knew where my father was. It wasn't like I had no idea where he was and always had a working number if I needed to get to him, right? Um, I grew up in a single parent household, you know, was raised by a single mother. Um, it, it was me and my two brothers until much later uh, when um, my, my third brother came along. Um, and, um, we were just trying to make it. We were latchkey kids, you know, um, came home with my older brother who had to watch us till my mom got home. And it was a really, um, it was the eighties, you know, it was the nineties, the early night, the eighties, early nineties. And, um, we were just regular folk, you know, and, um, what saved me, I think, I don't know if there were signals. I think my signals were really interior. I mean, the one thing that I, I never, um, the one thing that I knew was that I didn't want to, you know, cause crack was really big back then, really big. And drugs were just really big. You know, you couldn't go anywhere outside without running into that. And um, I knew I didn't want that. I also knew that I didn't, another thing in that time, the 90s teenage pregnancy was, you know, it was certainly um, more, um, you know, more kind of the, 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 the style of the day than it is today. And um, I knew I didn't want that. And although that was all around me, I mean, I think I may be one of the only one of very few of my family members in the same kind of generation, female who a woman who young woman who was who 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 did not take that route. Um, not that there's a judgment there one way or the other, but I knew that I didn't want that. And so, really, it was the negative things in my estimation that were the exterior signals. It was what I didn't want. Um, that was very clear to me. But um, I also had, for all of the struggle, and it goes back to kind of womanist ethics, I think, the kind of womanism that my own mother embodied, even though she, she would never self-identify as a womanist. Um, I had a mother who didn't play that. <laughs> you know, struggle or not, my mother didn't play that. You know what I'm saying? She was just like, you're going to go to school. You're not going to be running these streets. You're going to get your education. You're going to college. You're not going to be running these streets. No, you can't go to the party. No, no boys can come over to this house. Nobody's sitting on these. Like that was my My mother was not having it. And um, she was also very clear that she was going to do everything in her um uh, in her power to ensure that her children, all of us, could go a little bit further than um, 
than the generation prior. Now, my mother now, you know, she has a doctor. She's, she's doing her thing. I mean, she's amazing. But back then, you know, it, it, it took a while for that to manifest. So back then, you know, my mother, we couldn't hang out. You know, we, we could go to school and we could go to our um, programs, you know. So I was in like the freestyle, you know, I was, I took, um, well, maybe it wasn't free. I don't know how she did it, but, you know, she put me in music lessons. I was in like the community art, you know what I'm saying? Just whatever was happening at the center, you know, um, music lessons, dance lessons, um, and I, I sung in choir, you know, uh, we could go to church. She took us to church every, every Sunday, you know, we could do church. And, um, and, and, and so those were the exterior signals, right? It was the negative stuff. And then a the mother who didn't play that, which also kind of read negative back then. Cause like, dang mom, you know, calm down. But there were interior signals too. I realized through her, right, kind of putting me places because I couldn't just roam, but she put me places. I realized in those spaces, things that I was good at and things that I really liked. I love to dance and I could outdance everybody, Daria, okay? I could outdance, honey, I was winning talent shows on the block, okay, at the, at the block party, at the boys and girls club. I was, you know, I was, I was bad back then when I was little, little, little something, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, choreographing dances for my friends in school. And then eight or ten of us would, you know, be dancing to um, you know, Aisha from that group ABC or some, you know, some old school <laughs> thing. And um I love to dance. And, you know, at that point we couldn't afford the most you know, we couldn't afford to go to Dance Theater of Harlem. We couldn't afford to go to Alvin Ailey at that point in my life, but I got what I could get, you know, um, in our community programs and, um, and, I, and I sought more. I sought, I sought out more, um, which, you know, I played the violin until I was 17 years old and my brother sold my violin, long story. <laughs> <laughs> and when he when he sold it, I was like, okay, I guess I'm not. I just, you know, I guess I'm not playing that again because who can go out and buy another violin? Um, you know, I. Um, it was the it was art that saved me, because that was my ticket out, of a life that so many young women born in the '80s, you know, lived. It was a life where drugs could creep in in junior high school. You know, it was a life where, you know, unwanted, um, you know, sexual uh, liaisons, engagements, assaults could creep in very, very early. Um, and um, I uh, managed to escape that because my mom put me, put me places and in a few of those places I discovered, I was able to discover something about myself that kept me seeking more and wanting to go deeper and wanting to know more and to do more and to be more. You know, I, I um, preached a sermon once, I don't remember this, that, the message of the sermon, but I remember kind of describing, it was called Showtime and it was for, 
a Sunday where we were highlighting Alvin Ailey at, um, at, at Abyssinian. And I was, um, you know, when I was like 14 years old, I was like, Ms. Jameson will never remember this, but I was like her errand girl, you know, when we were still on 61st street, you know, they would send me over to her house and she will never remember that because, <laughs> but you know, anyway, so, um, I remember saying, uh, which was, you know, around that age was my first kind of interaction with the school. But I, I remember um, saying how dancing, right, it, it taught me to like stretch a little bit further and to stand a little bit taller and to reach a little bit higher. And that's exactly what it did. It, it helped me to stretch beyond which, that which was my everyday and to really kind of reach for a little bit more than what was my everyday circumstances and to um, just kind of bend and move in ways that were very distinct from, um, you know, from what was normal in my community. And that's what I did. And ultimately that is what led me to Manhattan, right? Um, no longer, you know, as a commuter, <laughs> you know, on, on the D train, but, you know, as, <laughs> but, you know, into the city to pursue a career um, as, as a dancer and ultimately, you know, um, I mean, this is an, another detour, but ultimately, um, really to to be introduced to the world of philosophy and theology um, that was very much informed and continues to be informed by my work, my primary work or my prior work as an artist. So, and you know, just to, to let the listener get up to speed, so. Um, Ebony Marshall Terman, you know, we speak of her as, you know, professor at Yale Divinity School, um, you know, second woman uh, to to do the ordinances at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in its 213th year history. Um, but you started out as a dancer. Like, you were a dancer. You were dancing with Alvin Ailey. You were in it, you know, ended up at Fordham in their program yeah. and and encountered philosophy, encountered philosophy. And and again, you know, as you speak um, about like stretching a little bit further, um, you know, you 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 stretched in a completely new way. Right. There was a mental stretch that was ignited. And I think to also kind of bring bring home the story, which thank you for sharing um, about your life in Brooklyn, you know, in a philosophical term, it would be called like the via negativa, right? Like the negative way, like using negativity as a way of guiding one's, you know, decisions and thought process. Usually it's associated with God, right? It's not what God is, but what God is not, right? Mm -hmm. So in a way, you know, if we're speaking about, you know, us as as the divine as well, we are doing the same, right? You, in your path through Brooklyn, were defining what God through you is not, right? Uh, which right. is really amazing, but then also speaks to the importance of access, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and that although from a certain lens, these quote-unquote community programs, 
right, could be seen in a light. Um, what they allowed for was so a young important. black woman to to not only find parts of herself, but but provide spaces of affirmation at whatever level, at whatever age, that would then draw you further, right, along a path and would, you know, create a sense of, of, of personal, you know, love and affection and maybe even curiosity about what else, even if it's what else could I be applauded for, right? But, but those are the things that, you know, guided you, you know, and shaped you. But to, to kind of double tap on this, this pivotal moment, you know, at Fordham, when you discovered philosophy, Mm-hmm. You know, and you were still dancing at the same time. Still I mean, dancing. you yep. went, you went on to Union Theological Seminary and still dancing, still dancing. at the yeah. same time. At and same yet time. you knew that there was a call. There was something else. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that feel like? Right. What does that feel like um, when when one is moving through the world in the best way they know how, and then all of a sudden, without a shallow shadow of a doubt, there is something else, right? Those moments happen to many of us. What is that? What is that? What is that moment? How do we know? Yeah, I want to, I just want to um, backtrack a little bit because you know, often when I talk about my dance life, it kind of, I mean, we talked about the community programs and all that, which is, I mean, those programs are priceless. I mean, they're just, there is no price that could be put on the way those programs change lives, but we'll put a pin in that. But I'll often start with talking about my years at Ailey. And I, Mm -hmm. I want to say that, you know, my dancing started with like the walk and like doing the butt, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like, the snake, you know, that, that that's where my dancing started. And much of that, I got to shout out my father's side of the family, my aunt Deborah, you know, who, who, who wanted to dance. She did dance a little bit, you know, as a young woman and then life kind of caught up, but my aunt Deborah and my cousins, um, Felicia and destiny, you know, we, you know, we used to, you know, my cousins were street, you know what I'm saying? But, and I was the youngest of the bunch, but we used to, I remember dancing in my aunt Deb's kitchen and they would teach me the, they were older than me. You know, they were like teenagers and I was a little girl and they would teach me the new dance. They go Ed, go Ed, you know? And so, you know, so that, that is also, is, is equally as important, right? Um, to my finding my way into a concert world, right? And then um, and, and then onwards and upwards. But so shout out, shout out to, to that side of the family too. I, I just, you know, um, the distinction that is often read between um, like being a dancer and being, um, specifically a preacher or one who exhorts, which of course kind of arises out of my theological training and vision and imagination and my philosophical understandings. Um, 
that distinction is 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 very it's it's kind of false in my opinion right i don't know if god was doing a new thing with me right in terms of like okay you're kind of doing this concert work and some i think i was probably doing some commercial work like i did some modeling you know nothing heavy nothing major you know just a couple things here and there when I was younger you know the world Dar. you know that world you know you just you get gigs you do this you do that you do whatever you can to pull to so you know I did I was in that world um but I think there's more connection between that and this work of exhortation than we give it credit for because my work as an artist and certainly as a performer has always been a work of exhortation in my mind, right? It's always a work of um, kind of connecting, of drawing people in and up. It's always a work of, or in an, there's always an intention of revelation involved. There's always um, an intent to, to communicate and to share a message. And I think that in terms of theology and in terms of, of the, the, the work of, of a preacher, which, where's, which is where I was ultimately led, and as a teacher who teaches pastors now um, and religious leaders, I think that's what I'm still doing. I think that it is about communicating a message. It is about connecting. It is about revelation. It is about calling people in and up. And it's just a different medium that I'm using. I mean, my first book I wrote completely in terms of method through a ballet class. The book is essentially a bar, right? It is uh, an adage, it is, uh, you know, a petit and a grand allegro. That's, that's how I imagine, <laughs> right? That's how I imagine my writing as a ballet class, right? There's an introduction, a little warm up, you know, and then you go center floor and you kind of do a little bit more of a warm up, right? That's chapter two and three. <laughs> and then, you know, chapter four and five is, you know, you're starting to jump a little bit and get really into it. And by the time you're at chapter six or seven, you that's the whole shebang. You at the Grand Allegro, right? And so, um, but it's a different medium. And so I think that all the while I was dancing and, you know, I remember back, you know, to, um, you know, I came up under like um, Denise Jefferson and um, who's, who was, has gone to be uh, at peace now, to, gone to be with God. And uh, I came up under certainly Miss Jemison and Sylvia Waters and Derek Minter and um, Dudley, you know, and, um, you know, I'm old now. <laughs> When I think about it, I'm like, oh, you know, I came up under a lot of folks who, who are now gone. But if, you know, like I, re I remember um, Denise Jefferson specifically saying to me um, something about 
how my movement, I can't remember what I was dancing to. I want to say, I can't remember, but how my movement was like speaking. It was saying something, right? Of course, no words, but it was, it was like speaking. And I, um, and I, I, I always recall that. And I really believe that my dancing was sermonic. You know, I believe that dancing is sermonic, right? It, I, I believe that, you know, when I was, you know, before COVID, when I was still like going to class fairly irregularly, but like still kind of having a toe in, you know, I would understand my work in class to be like worship, to be an act of worship. Um, and, and, um, and it's the same way I feel about, you know, the ways that I proclaim now, right? I'm just using a different medium. And um, it's interesting, Dario, because people really see them as so different and they are, I don't want to collapse them and say, oh, it's the same thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with intent, like who the dancer is, who the performer is, who the preacher is, right? But, um, but for me, it wasn't, it, it, it was very continuous. It made perfect sense that I would like be a dancer who was also like into, um, I don't know, reading like, I don't know, black theology or womanist theology. Like it made sense. It was about bodies. It was about community. It was about love. It was about, you know, or the, the you know, the theology I was reading was about kind of strengthening the people. It was a, you know, it was, it was the same principles at work, but just a different way to do it. And um yeah, and so I don't feel like God was calling me into something new. I think God was calling me to expand what I was, have always been doing since I was a little kid, which was bringing bodies together and, and, and calling us to do more and to go higher. That's what I was doing when I was teaching my entire sixth grade class how to tap dance you know, like during recess, right? That was what I was doing. I mean, that's what I have always been doing. Um, the way that I've done it has shifted through mm -hmm. the years as things do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this hits home as as one uh, who who many people try to understand uh, from the outside and just get generally confused. Um, but for me, it all is like, this all makes sense to me. Like it's all the same thing, right? It's just a different way, right? I, using whichever medium best tells the story, you know, essentially. Um, exactly. but like, you know, at some point this like confluence of, you know, the body, your awareness of like the body and space, your mm. discovery and encounter with the world of philosophy mm -hmm. um, and a theology, which was, you know, you know, engendered right as 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 a youth. Um, you know, when did you become consciously aware of the black body and its relationship mm -hmm. to normative power structures? as an invocation of divine power. Like you, you, you said, you know, the bodies that defy normative power are God's body. So when, when was that 
encounter? You know, it's so interesting. I mean, so I'll say two <laughs> things. I'll, I'll say two things to that. So when I got to college, when I ended up at Fordham, which was like a blessing, oh, it was a blessing to my life. Um, I realized I could think. I mean, I'd always been relatively smart. Like, you know, I didn't have to try really hard in school. I just kind of did my thing, you know? Um, in fact, I don't ever really remember doing homework. I know I did, but <laughs> I know I did homework, like a lot of it in, in high school, but I don't, or in school period, but I don't ever remember doing. So I um, I kind of got through school, but, and, and everything, you know, like, Black people were bodied people. We were just bodied people. I mean, in my later teen years, you know, I remember, well, later teen, like 15, 16, you know, being in Brooklyn and like, it was just body. I don't know, Dario, where you were in like 90, like late nineties, you know, summertime. Like it was just, Brooklyn was just body. It was like, color it was music you know I think around that time like Biggie died and people were out in the street on you know like I think I was around that day in Crown Heights I don't know but like <laughs> it was or Crown Heights Bed-Stuy you know but um I remember you know it was just it was just it was just sound and color and right and and that was just I don't know Brooklyn is like music or used to be I don't know what's going on now <laughs> but um you know and so like Harlem you know Harlem I don't know what's going on these days but Harlem was the same way um well you know I got to Harlem a little bit later in my life but you know it was that same kind of energy um, different energy, but that same kind of thing as it relates to Black bodies. And so, I mean, I was just kind of, I was a child of that, you know? Um, and it wasn't that there wasn't thinking going on too, right? Because there's, there's that. But in college, I was like, oh, there's this other thing. Like, I can read texts and I can like talk about them. In addition to being this, you know, girl who could dance, like I could actually say something and somebody would listen in a way that was not familiar to me. You know, growing up, I could dance and people would look. But then when I got to college, I was like, oh, I can read and I can think and then I can say something and, and someone's going to listen to what I have to say. And that was like, whoa. And so I kind of just basked in that for a while. <sighs> okay, this is the hard part. So um, I was working on um, the Revelations tour at, with Ailey and I was reading and I was dancing and I was thinking, right? And I was performing and I was teaching. And I like, so I was doing all of this hybrid stuff when I got, so this summer, we, I don't know what was going on, but I think it was like, we were going to, some of our benefactors were hosting a little summer thing at their home. 
And I remember exactly who it was and I'm not gonna call names because they're they are beautiful people, right? Like we live in contradictions. And um, I remember getting there and all of us, I think, all of the dancers or people like affiliated with Ailey were black. Teaching artists, everybody was like black. And it was a beautiful home, beautiful home. And it's a painful, I don't know if you can tell, I'm like picking at something on my desk and like looking down and it's a, it's a painful memory. Uh, it was a beautiful home. It was a beautiful day. Uh, I remember the sun was shining and there was a gorgeous pool. And at one point in the afternoon, we were told to line up in front of the pool so that we could introduce ourselves to the, the patrons, benefactors, whatever. And that's when it hit me. I mean, that was a turning point in my life, clear as day. All of these, remember I'm reading these texts in school, I'm doing this work, you know, I'm kind of have my hand in every pot. We lined up in front of the pool and there was one black patron. I still remember her. Everybody else was white. And they were all seated at these like probably eight top rounds. And we were all lined up in front of the pool. And I remember that the help um, were dressed in classic uh, black and whites, like um, maids black and whites, not tuxedo black and white, like you know, the little apron and that whole deal. And they were, and this is like, this had to have been early 2000s. Like it, it couldn't, it could have been 99, but I'm thinking it had to have been early 2000s. So it's not like a long time ago. And I remember, and they were women of color, black and brown women going around like refilling lemonade or iced tea. All of these black bodies lined up in front of the pool and a sea of not a lot of white, but it was, it was a couple, probably eight tops, right? Rounds seated down, um, seated in front of us. And we actually had to go one by one and say our names, of course, right? And like smile. And I was like, huh, you know, I was like, oh, this feels very auction blocky. <laughs> you know, because remember I'm reading all these texts, I'm doing philosophy and African-American studies, I'm in college and I thought, now they all sitting down and I'm standing here and have to say my name and smile. And then the black women, because then I was a young girl, are pouring their tea. This feels very auction blocky to me. This, like, it was then when I knew something about, there was a rupture where I recognized my body as commodity. And 
I didn't like the way that felt. And in that moment, I knew I had to get out of there. And that there would be no more auction block for me. So I knew that I was like, oh, I have to. The difference was that I could actually think of, I had acquired some skill set to actually be able to see and name what I was feeling. And I decided for myself that I would never, ever be subjected to that kind of gaze again. And um, there was another thing that happened uh, in the studio, right? That was very painful. But I think that was, to your question, that was the moment of rupture when I understood myself as a black body, like in the throes of capitalist acquisition and um, decided that I, I mean, we all live in the throes of capital. I mean, what are we gonna do? But I decided that I would not allow myself to participate in that way ever again. And one of the ways out of that for me was education. I knew I had to get educated, right? Or else I would have to subject myself to that um, continuously. I would have to because that my livelihood would depend on that. And I decided my livelihood could not depend on that. It had to be something else for me. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I love I love, I mean I don't love that story, but I I love the narrative of that story because, you know, on one hand, you know it shows that hidden in plain sight uh, is the evidence that what one reads as history is ongoing. Oh yes. Right, that that is not a fixed thing in the past, um, but and and although you know perhaps the recipe has changed, the relationship of the ingredients have remained the same, mm-hmm. um, and the ways in which you know an education or a vocabulary allows a certain level of perceptivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to actually name the thing, to actually nail it on the board versus what Toni Morrison would call a hunch because you have the data, you have the information, and yet you don't have the words to, to, to nail it. And so you're right. just left with the feeling. Um, right. you, know, you know, but I also find this uh, an interesting grounding um, and, and kind of, beginning of a pivot because that was I shouldn't say a pivot but an expanded awareness because that was really just the beginning right like this 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 gaze uh that you felt um that 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 forced a certain um new awareness was met again in the black church Mm -hmm. and how was that, you know, encounter, right, to, to you know, even serve at a church, um, 
you know, such as Abyssinian, which is extremely progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, but like as you spoke about earlier, the ways in which a womanist theology gets at some of the um, maybe hidden or um, unrealized uh, tenets of black theology, mm-hmm. right? Your body in a black church and even a progressive black church yet still, right, falls under other types of like oppressive gaze. Absolutely. And I think that that is, um, I I love the way you've kind of encapsulated that. I think Abyssinian is a racially progressive church. Although sometimes, sometimes I wonder about that too, right? Um, Because of the ways that we can't separate race and class and um, how and, and how, um, how that can mess us up as a community as well. I mean, I'm thinking just about, you know, recent conversations around policing, um, conversations around uh, the legalization of marijuana, conversations around, I mean, there's just, there, there are so many things that can fragment us as a community, um, even if we understand ourselves as racially progressive. And so, be that as it may, absolutely, right? And this is precisely the um, kind of the tag or the ring of, or the power even of womanism. Because for as much as I felt myself as a racialized body, um, kind of a racialized body that was being employed to entertain the gaze of, 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 of white, of rich white people. Um, in the church, which I, I think, I think um, preliminarily I imagined as a safer space, a black space as a safer space. Um, I was met with you know gender discrimination um with you know you know being told i can't do certain things or i'll never be able to do certain things because because i'm a woman being told i mean i remember a woman yelled at me a woman yelled at me for wearing um for not wearing studs in the pulpit like I, I was wearing, um, I was wearing an onk actually from the streets of Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I, so they, you know, they dangled a, a little bit and I was yelled at. I, you know, I, I was yelled at for wearing pants and they were beautiful, purple Benetton pants. Okay. That was great back then. Okay. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, I, I um, like brought to tears because of some of these things. I was, um, you know, I would, you know, the the innuendo, right? The sexual innuendo um, told, you know, that I always had to wear three layers on top. 
so as not to entice, you know, the the gaze of men, right? Because of course, that the onus of, of, of keeping men, you know, in their place was on me. Um, you know, it was, it was its own kind of pain. And I think in some ways it was different, right? Because there were no white benefactors, right? And so, it, it, so in some ways it was um, even more painful because it was kind of intra-communal. It was, there was an interiority about it, like a kind of turning against oneself. Um, and yet, I had at that point, right? So whereas earlier on when I was just dealing with like, you know, kind of racialization in the entertainment industry, I had my books to help me wade through that. By the time I got to the church, I had like deep theological chops to help me resist a lot of that stuff too. And, um, and because of, you know, I don't know if this is um, a misplaced commitment, but because of my commitment to Black people and Black community, I wasn't as quick to run away um, when it got when it got weird. <laughs> you know, when it when it got oppressive, I was like, okay. Let's think through this, and we got, you know, we gotta, we gotta do some liberative work. We gotta help these people, you know, survive. We gotta get these people over. You know, this, yes, they don't want to cross the Red Sea, but we gonna, we gonna go anyway. And you know, so I had a little bit more to because of my commitment to the people. See, I just decided I didn't, I wasn't gonna deal with those white folks trying to, trying to commodify me. And in the black church, it wasn't so much about co-modification. I mean, we could talk about kind of labor practices and how women, right, are the primary labor force in black churches. And, you know, that, that yes, and, you know, have no, nothing to show for it. But that's not, um, that wasn't really the primary issue in the black church. I think the primary issue of the black church was just like, we gonna be black, you know, cis het men are going to be first. <laughs> and everybody else is gonna be next, right? But black cis het men in public are going to be first. That was it in the church. And, and I wasn't, um, and I'm still not like ready to say, to throw away black cishet men, although I probably should, right? I'm not ready and probably I'm not ready because like I have a father and I have brothers um, who, who I believe in, you know? Um, and so, I, but, I, but, I, but I stand ready as it relates to the church. I stand ready for revolution. And, um, and that's what I, 
that is my orientation to the church. So my orientation to the church is not dismissal, right? Um, as I can dismiss other kinds of institutions in terms of my relationship to them. My orientation to the church is about fighting for God's people. Um, and that is, that, that, that's where I am with that, right? I wanna fight for women in the church. I wanna fight for men who defy, right, right, normativity as it's a, you know, as, as it's inscribed by the arbiters of power. You know, I wanna fight for children. I wanna fight for queer folks. Um, I wanna fight for the gospel. I mean, and to kind of go back to where we started, you know, as a black womanist theologian, I believe that the gospel is on the side of all of those who I named. And, and that is, um, and I see my work as a revolutionary work um, uh, in relation to those um, and their place in black churches. Mm, mm. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have time for just a couple of other questions? Sure, sure. I've carved out oh. till three. So, oh, amazing. Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. I'm not going to do all that to you. <laughs> okay. Um, but like, you know, you have, um, you have this phrase and speaking about bodies and non-normative bodies, you know, as they exist in the black church that, you know, the bodies that defy normative power mm -hmm. are God's bodies. Yes. And I love that phrase. Could you unpack that a bit for us? Ooh, okay. Well, When we, I mean, very simply, without going into a deep theological lesson, when we think about normative or, or bodily normativity, I think just in like society, right? We think of typically white, right? Typically, I mean, we don't even say white, you know, white people don't even say, oh, I'm white. They just be like, oh, I'm a woman or I'm a man. like. I had a student in my class who kept saying a white male, a guy like me. And I had to stop and say, you have to self-identify, you have to socially locate yourself in this class. Cause a guy like me doesn't fly here. I don't know what kind of guy you are. You know, you've got to, you've got to socially locate yourself. That's not, you know, that's not, that is a privilege that's speaking when you can just be like, oh, a guy like me and assume that everyone knows who you are, right? So let's unpack that, but uh, you know, I digress. So this idea that, um, you know, when we think of like a normal guy like me, white, you know, um, uh, male kind of cisgender, um, heterosexual, at least in, in public, um, you know, uh, middle-class, if not, you know, wealthy, upper middle-class. Um, and, that's what we think of. It is the image of God. If you type in Jesus and go to images, you won't see a white, like clean, clean cut um, guy who would not 
you know, sexually gender, um, right, present as other than cis, right, het. So anybody else um, is, however they are embodied in opposition to that would be understood as non-normative. Now, when we talk about um, cisgender heterosexual black men and men of color, they typically, not always, but you know, because of an urge toward patriarchal power, aspire toward a white male normativity, right? And so, um, so in black spaces, then they want to hold that normative power and wield such normative power. And anybody who defies that male, cis, het, you know, identity is non-normative. Any, it, their bodies don't make sense. So a black woman, especially one who preaches and who's like of childbearing age makes no sense, <laughs> right? You could never be our pastor, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, oh. like um, a, uh, a trans, a black trans woman, right? No, like no sense that doesn't, right? Um, black gay men, right? It doesn't fit, it's, it's not disabled black folk, right? It doesn't, it just doesn't fit. It's, it's a broke, it's like broken. It's not what is normative, what we ought to be, right? Um, secondary, secondary and tertiary to the primary body, right? That kind of wields power. And so um, in my work, I have uncovered the body period as a theological problem. Like Christianity is about a problematic body. If you go back and look at, um, well, you don't even have to look, you, you don't have to look at like the councils of the tradition. You can just go back in the body, in the Bible, right? Jesus was like, I'm the son of God. And they were like, no, you're not. Cause you gotta, cause you bleed red just like the rest of us. So we gonna crucify you and get rid of you. So we don't have to deal with you. It was about a, a body that just didn't, right? They were thinking the Messiah would look like something else. That it wouldn't. The Messiah wasn't gonna come riding on a borrowed donkey. Messiah wasn't gonna come born in 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 the poverty of a barn. Come on, the body didn't make sense, right? It didn't. It didn't align with normative understandings of what a body with power was supposed to look like. It was a broken body, right? And um, so, yeah. So that's why I say that broken, so-called broken bodies, right? Um, bodies that defy. The, the arbiters of power, normativity as described by the arbiters of power, right, um, are in fact God's body. And um, they are bodies that are crucified um, over and over again. And I've got something to say about that. Mm. So. 
acceptance. What do you have to say about it? Um, well, I want to call attention to the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. I want to name evil, evil. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about what revolution looks like. I want to imagine a new kind of world for the dispossessed. Mm. And that's what I do when I write, when I preach, when I teach. Mm -hmm. I proclaim a new kind of world for the dispossessed who are uh, the bodies, the body of God mm -hmm. among us. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was, I knew I knew it was going to be a small a small touch of a sermon in here somewhere. I was <laughs> I was ready. I was about to pull out my wallet uh, for offering. You know, and speaking of speaking of the black church, like in in this space, right, and mm -hmm. in and with this with this lens of ministry, mm -hmm. like how do we reframe the black church to support today's expansive and embodied black experience? Yeah, I, um, that's a big question, Daria. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what, I think what I do is I, in my everyday work, Right. Um, so working with kind of the now generation and the next generations of religious leadership, specifically, I work with everybody. I work with the white folks and the black folks and the Asians and the Latinx and I work with everybody. Um, but even more specifically working with um, black students, I try to talk about those things that we never talk about at church. So I want to, for me, the work that I do right now is about encouraging um, this next group of, of church leaders to have very hard conversations um, and to really um, approach those conversations from the perspective of revelation the perspective of what God is doing and saying to us. Because in order for the church to be transformed and or abolished and for it to come again, um, we're going to have some, we're gonna to have to have some hard conversations, right? It's going to be hard to talk about, to talk to people who have been conditioned to hate themselves and to hate their children and to hate their lovers because of their gender identity or because of their sexuality, to hate their neighbors because of their class identity, the color, the col because of colorism in our community and pigmentocracy. Like it's hard to talk to people who have been conditioned to hate themselves about getting free, about surviving the blight. And so we don't have the conversations. We don't talk about the things we ought to be talking about in churches um, because it's hard. And often we don't know where to start. And so I think imagining a black church that is big enough for all of us um, is going to require our being thrilled <laughs> and prepared to have hard conversations um, as a first step. And, um, you know, 
it, it could yield a lot. It could, like I said, it could yield abolition. It could yield, you know, big fights. It could, like, it could yield a lot. And then we have to be ready to rebuild from there. It takes time, right? It, it doesn't happen overnight. But I do think that we have a new generation of young leaders who are sometimes ready to ask hard questions. And um, yeah, I think it, it's almost like, you know, I started talking about um, Ahmaud Arby's mother and her kind of saying, I'm going to name evil and I'm going to fight this thing until the truth prevails. And I think that's kind of how I understand transformation in the Black church. We have to name what's going on. And we also have to be willing to fight that thing until truth prevails. So. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, I have just two more questions for you. Mm -hmm. um, one really about self-care, actually, in this moment, you know, um, with with being, you know, a wife and mother of two um, and, you know, preacher and uh, scholar and, and teacher, professor, what are those rituals of self-connectedness that you, that you practice in order to maintain and endure and see another day? You know, I have to get better with it, to be honest mm. with you. You know, having, mm. two, having two toddlers in a pandemic um, <laughs> doesn't support self-care. <laughs> but, what, but what but what I have realized and what I continue to realize and what I um hope to have the wisdom and strength to continue le leaning into is asking for and accepting all of the support I can get. I um I need help. I need community to raise my children. I need help um, for to work. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, in order to write books, I need help. I need people to, you know. Um, and so asking for help is a good thing when you need it. And um, as, as rough as it gets, Dario, as rough as it gets, and let me tell you, there have been days, honey, because I've had to teach classes, preach. I had newborn infants, no childcare when everything first shut down and just try on a wing and a prayer, hoping they would sleep so I could preach this sermon uh, on Zoom. <laughs> I, um, as rough as it's gotten, I have committed to like caring for my body in a small way. So these days I don't get out to run as much. I used to run all the time. I don't get out to run as much. Um, I don't go to gyms because I'm still not doing that. Although that used to be totally a part of my everyday life. 
Um, I do have a little Peloton or whatever, but it's not the same. <laughs> um, I get my nails done. You know, I put on my N95 and make my little appointment and sit in the corner and I, I get my nails and I paint them uh, all kinds of colors. I remember I was once told, you can't have your nails that color. If you're going to serve communion, you're going to lift up the bread and your nails going to be orange. <laughs> it's like I paint my nails all kinds of colors. I, I try to keep my hair done. Um, I try to, uh, I try to be the, I, I try to embody the beauty of blackness um, as much as I can, as hard as it gets. Uh, I try to attend to my body um, in the ways that I can. And that's just a small measure of self-care. I wish I could go on some lavish trips right now. And let me tell you, I have a list and I am ready to go as soon as my girls can get vaccinated and I can you know, feel a little bit better about not bringing COVID back into the house. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I um, wish I could do a little more right now, but it's really hard. It's really hard when your life is, is oriented towards serving others. All I do really is you know, work with my students um, and try to get my work done for the betterment of the church and show up and talk to people. That's what I do right now. Um, but I, I wish I could do more, but the little bit I can do is, is attend to my body in very small ways. And that means keeping my hair done, keeping my nails done, trying to do a little stretch in the morning. And of course, reading. So one of the things that I picked up again in COVID was just reading um, fiction. I love a good mystery. So I try to get a couple pages. I mean, I have to read for my, my job is reading. So I read a lot of nonfiction, but I try to read a few pages of something. And, um, and that's really fun. And it kind of lets me exhale a little bit. So that's what I do. Oh, well, thank you for sharing. Um, Dr. Ebony, Dr. Ebony Marshall Terman, this was a conversation I I'm just one so thrilled to be having finally, but one that I've looked forward to for so long. And, you know, before I ask my last question, I just want to take this moment to just acknowledge um, that work, like the work that you not only have um, done with and 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 uh, amongst you know yourself and your ancestors and those that power through you, um, but the work of 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 standing in defiance of so so many gazes that I did not even realize at the moment, right, were taking place when I witnessed you literally whipping the church up into a frenzy all by yourself, right? I remember Sundays where you did baptism and communion and preached by yourself. There was no one else at the church. And then turn around and I would see like the bottom of your heels were red. Like I remember... <laughs> <laughs> Like, like all, I I literally called you the Beyonce of the pulpit. That's that was I I literally like that was my my nickname for you. 
but then also like you know you know bringing bringing like a liberation theology to a people who like you said in a sermon that you gave for Howard University find themselves civically homeless mm-hmm. right you know that that even that even this act of liberation um and this um, this profession in in theology actually does get at design, actually does get at the built environment. What does it mean to exist in a house that you have literally built, right? And yet it does not provide you shelter. It does not protect you in any way. And so you actually, we find ourselves homeless, right? And that yeah. in that space, you say, and yet, there is still a word for you, right? Mm-hmm. Through 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 the embodiment of the understanding of the light that we collectively call right Jesus the Christ, that there is still uh, there is still uh, fertilizer, right here for you to bloom in the yes. midst, you know, of this chaos. Um, and so I thank you for that tireless and foundational work um, because it is providing it is it is imbuing the archive uh with another set of tools with another set of vocabularies for us to speak to those hunches that we feel um in our daily lives so thank you thank you for that um and so with this last question what is the world that you imagine for the future I imagine a world of black flourishing. I imagine um, a world where, I'm not sure if this is flourishing, but a world where black people, are not, you know, uh, incarcerated more than anyone else. Um, A world where when I see police, I mean, I would really like a world with no police, but on the way there, when I see them, I don't think, am I doing something wrong? Um, I'll imagine a world where Um, my girls could go to school where they live um, and I not be um, concerned um, for their safety in the throes of anti-Blackness. I imagine a world where Um, look, I imagine a world that we could actually create today if we wanted to, a world where people were not hungry, um, a world where everyone was sheltered, a world where everyone had healthcare and access to vaccines, I imagine a world 
where human beings really were what God called us at the beginning. Good. That's the world um, that I would want for my children to grow up in. And until that time, I'm going to do all I can to help create it in the little piece of the world that I inhabit. You got it. I mean, <laughs> we have no choice but to, right? There is there is, just how to just allow that the stream flow through. Thank you. Thank you again so much. This was such a pleasure. Um, also, where can people connect with you? Yeah, so um, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Ebony Thoughts, E-B-O-N-I Thoughts. And of course, on Facebook, Ebony Marshall Terman. Um, my website is www.marshallterman.com. And um, I actually will be preaching at Abyssinian on this Sunday. I'm sure this won't be ready in time, but I will be preaching <laughs> <laughs> at Abyssinian. And, and, you know, I'm preaching all, um, all over, kind of. It's still COVID, so that's that's weird still, but um, you can follow my website. You can follow me again on IG or Twitter or Facebook and um, stay up to date on where I'll be in the days ahead. Uh, amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Terman. Um, have Absolutely. a beautiful, beautiful afternoon. Thank you, Dario. Thank you all so much for joining us today. As the queer child of a Baptist minister, this conversation washed over me and reified my love for the broken bodies amongst us. What was your big takeaway? Let us know your thoughts over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination, and be sure to check out our digital platform, blackimagination.com. As many celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, let this conversation be a reminder that even when you're down and out, and all hope seems lost, you too can rise again. Stay curious and keep dreaming.